0: It's Thursday, August 12th, from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This is the News Items Podcast, based loosely on my newsletter, News Items. I'm John Ellis. Today, we have part two of my conversation with Donald G. McNeil, Jr. His coverage of the pandemic for The New York Times throughout 2020 was and remains, in a word, extraordinary. He won the 2020 John Chancellor Award for Excellence And the Pulitzer Prize board cited his work when it awarded the 2021 Pulitzer Prize in public service to the Times. If you haven't heard yesterday's episode where we discussed the Delta variant and its impact, be sure to go back and give it a listen. Today, we take a step back and discuss the origins of the virus. Here we go. I wanted to ask you just how you came to cover the virus. Did you assign yourself or did somebody assign you? Or Well, it was my beat. I mean, at the
1: times, I, right. I covered, you know, plagues and pestilences. I cover global health and I cover infectious diseases. So I kind of always have my eye out or did always have my eye out then for outbreaks anywhere in the world. And I did see on ProMed, which is a disease alert service, something about, mysterious pneumonias in a um, a seafood market in Wuhan. And I thought, hmm, sounds a little bit like SARS. But I just sort of put it aside because a lot of things that you see on ProMed turn out to be nothing eventually. Right. But then, you know, it just day by day by day, it got more and more alarming. And finally, by the end of January, I became convinced that it was going to be the new 1918, you know, the equivalent of Spanish flu. Right. How do you report a story like that? Well, It all depends on the story. You know, for many years, I was sort of alone on this beat. And so I would go to the front, you know, whether it was AIDS or Zika or something like that. But on this story, it became so alarming that ultimately, you know, every reporter at the New York Times has played a role in in covering the story. And I, I feel like everybody elbowed their way onto my beat and everybody suddenly became an expert, you know, an armchair epidemiologist and a virologist and everything else, which has been, uh you know a lot of my early work was saying no 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 that's not how you know our not works and and or uh, you know what's going on inside the diamond princess is not necessarily what's going to go on inside new york city when it works here so my role in this one at the times was mostly to sort of talk to experts you know we had bureaus in china and they were covering it from the front lines there and then of course it hit right. every country around the world and so we had reports from every country around the world so i was mostly Talking to experts this time, and because we were in lockdown, it was mostly over the phone. And ultimately, my assignment became to predict the future: what's going to happen in the next couple of months, what's going to happen in the next year. And they would ask me to write these big five thousand word pieces, sort of looking at what's likely to happen with the spread of the virus, what's likely to happen if we tried this in the lockdown or that lockdown, what's likely to happen if we try masks. Are these vaccines ever going to work? And things like that. And that was very unusual for a journalist. You know, normally you write about the past, whether it's what happened. 10 years ago or what happened yesterday, but I was suddenly being asked to write about what's going to happen. And it wasn't always rosy. It was pretty bleak, especially at the beginning.
0: How did you sort of separate hard fact from sort of fact? Is that just a matter of checking and double-checking with people who are expert in the field, or were there certain journals that helped you do that?
1: You look for the data you
0: know an anecdotal
1: study where somebody says gee i had 5 patients and hydroxychloroquine seemed to work you know like a miracle is not necessarily a good study you know you look for the you know randomized placebo controlled double blinded trials if you can get those but other times you look at to see where do you think the scientists have a good reputation are they saying things that are consistent with what they said before does what they're predicting for this virus seem like the other coronaviruses we know about SARS and MERS being the deadly ones and and the four relatively benign coronaviruses being the other ones but you know viruses in the same family tend to behave somewhat the same way so you look at you take what you know and you look a lot at what seems plausible to you and then who's got the most convincing
0: data there's been books obviously written about it Lawrence Wright wrote a sort of epic all magazine piece for the New Yorker in which he essentially blamed the Trump administration for the U.S.'s, I guess we'll call it sluggish response to the virus. Michael Lewis wrote a piece that was quite damning about the CDC. In those days, what was your assessment of how the government responded to the crisis? Disaster. Total
1: disaster. We had lots of warning. We saw what happened in China. It happened then in Iran. It happened after that in Italy. It moved from there to Western Europe. We had weeks of warning. The Chinese had a test within days after they had the sequence of the virus. The WHO had a test because the Germans invented an excellent test. The French invented a test. The Thais invented a test. You know, lots of countries did. We fumbled around for two months before we came up with the test because the CDC took this, if it isn't invented here, it didn't happen attitude. And the test was botched. And so we were flying blind for two months. We didn't know where the cases were. And the virus was spreading all during that time, spreading in very unpredictable ways. We had no idea how bad the situation was in New York. And we were still heading towards having the St. Patrick's Day parade and March Madness was still on at the time. And as soon as the test was finally rolled out, it was, you know, even in Brooklyn, I could see it just sort of ping, 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 ping. Everywhere I listened, there were people turning up positive. And I was, shocked because we we knew about a big outbreak in new rochelle we didn't really realize how much was spread in new york city and it took the mayor a while to shut the city down the mayor and the governor and then we had this gigantic surge of hospitalizations and deaths and you know very quickly we ended up with denialism from the top where president trump was insisting that it was all going to just blow away it was just going to wash through the population that that's actually an epidemiological term where the virus will wash through the population but it's not a good thing it's not (laughs) washing through like a gentle breeze it's washing through like a tidal wave carrying everything with it and in fact it did that and the notion that we'd shut down for 15 days and and we'd all pop open by easter again was just wishful thinking it was dreamland and he was you know suppressing anybody who didn't agree with him nancy Messinier at the cdc raised the alarm And that caused the stock market to drop 500 points. And she was silenced, gagged after that. And then, you know, Alex Azar, whom I thought was leading a reasonably effective and and correctly alarming response, he was removed and replaced with Mike Pence. And the whole operation became echo what the president wants. This is not so serious. And the cure is worse than the disease. And the economy is more important than human lives, in effect. And this will all be, you know, we'll just sort of, Go through the motions that the you know those elitist scientists suggest, but we're going to have the economy open soon, and and he was being influenced by the let's just ride it out crowd. Let's let a whole lot of people die and just you know get to herd immunity that way. And we've had six hundred thousand deaths so far. Had we really just ridden it out? Had we done nothing? The original model suggested two point two million deaths, and that that probably wasn't terribly far off. I mean, one of the things we learned was that. If you let your hospitals get overwhelmed, the chances of you dying if you're in the hospital just about double. And we see, you know, in countries where the hospitals have gotten so completely and totally overwhelmed they run out of oxygen, the death rates go shooting up. And that's what happens when you try to just ride out an epidemic and not slow it down with the boring and economy-crushing social distancing measures that we partially adopted. All right, we're going
0: to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Donald McNeil.
2: I wanted
0: to ask you also about other countries that have been slammed by the virus. I've never quite felt like I knew actual data, if you will, regarding Russia and Iran, particularly. Do you have a sense of how bad the virus hit in those two countries? We know it hit really
1: hard in Iran because, you know, regardless of what their figures, you know, the Google satellite and all the other satellites picked up the mass graves in Kum and the other cities. Right. But, you know, when people were denying, that this virus was bad to me back in the beginning, I, I would say, look, we see the mass graves. Those refrigerated trucks parked behind all the hospitals in New York City aren't there because they contain popsicles. But the data coming out of these countries is not very good. Right. Iran is not open. Russia is clearly being hit hard. They've said that a number of times. There's been limited coverage from out of there. I, I don't, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were going to ask this question, so I don't have the data at my fingertips. But right, right. not a whole lot of countries have completely and totally escape this. New Zealand, Taiwan, you know, and China itself. China's done an amazing job of shutting down the virus they have from the very beginning. I mean, public health officials were absolutely amazed. They said, look, no one has ever stopped a fast-moving respiratory disease before. This is like catching a hurricane in a butterfly net. They did it through very brutal measures, measures that I'm sure we could not have carried off in the United States, but they did it, and they saved, you know, Probably they were on track to lose ten million lives since they were hit first. They had no preparations, and their population is so big that had and. and Instead, I haven't seen the latest counts, but it's less than ten thousand lives.
0: I think. Right, that was one of the things about the pandemic is that having not been through anything like it before of this kind of severity, the medical in in living
1: memory. But we have been through many many things like this before. Right, you know, in the past.
0: No, I was thinking of, you know, all of these people suddenly streaming into hospitals and, you know, the doctors not really knowing what to do, you know, the knowing some things to do, but sort of being...
1: Doctors got much better at saving lives. I mean, and, and some of those techniques were, you know, knowing when to put somebody on a ventilator and when not to, uh, using high flow oxygen, giving them steroids, proning them when they're on ventilators. And now we've got treatments like the monoclonal antibodies, which work quite well, if you can get them to people early enough. Mm -hmm. Um, So we've learned to save lives in ways that we did not at the beginning of the
0: pandemic. Yeah, that was the question I was fumbling towards. I wanted to ask you, you were amongst, I think, most everyone else, not convinced, but relatively sure that this was an animal to human transmission that caused the outbreak. You then wrote a piece saying How I Learned to Love the Lab Leak Theory. Can you take us through your transition there?
1: Yeah. Look, my transition is not complete. We don't know where this virus came from.
0: Right, I should start with that,
1: yeah. The obvious explanation for things like this, because it matches what's happened in the past, is that it's a spillover from an animal. MERS Mm -hmm. was a spillover from an animal. SARS was a spillover from an animal. The 1918 flu was originally a bird flu, Maybe went into swine. We know that the 2009 H1N1 pandemic that we had in this country, which was a, a true pandemic but turned out to be milder than we feared, that was definitely a swine flu that picked up some extra genes. So this is the norm. And what happened was back last year, the virus came out of Wuhan. There is a Wuhan Institute of Virology. There are two labs in Wuhan that do very dangerous gain-of-function research working with bat viruses. And so people went, ah, there's a smoking gun, and that's it. And because the Wuhan lab actually had a virus in its freezers that was 96% identical, that made a lot of people say, that's it, there's the proof. But virologists correctly said, look, a 4% difference in a slow-mutating virus, and despite what we've seen in the last year, this is a slow-mutating virus, is an evolutionary difference of 40 years this virus in their freezers and the SARS virus were actually descended from an ancestor virus probably 40 years ago. So it's not the smoking gun. And there was a lot of careful scientific explanations of why this was not a lab-manipulated virus, or did not appear to be one at the time. Mm -hmm. And so there was a battle going on between the science reporters like me, who were talking to virologists saying, look, this looks like an animal spillover, and the national security reporters who were being given leaks generally anonymous saying well we think this is you know came out of a lab it came out of a lab in china but there was no evidence of that nothing there was some complaints about procedures at the lab back in 2018 but they didn't look up and so i wrote an article explaining all the reasons why it was mostly likely that it was an animal spillover that article never ran for various reasons partially because we were having this dispute within the times between the two sets of reporters. And partially because the article was so filled with language like O-link glycans and, and you know, for in cleavage sites and stuff like that, that my editors kind of just felt it was too technical. It never ran out a of times. Uh, earlier this year, another former colleague of mine, Nick Wade, who retired more than a decade ago, wrote an article saying it's time for another look at the lab leak theory. I looked at his article. I disagreed with a lot of the things. He blamed Tony Fauci. He blamed Peter Daszak. He blamed people that I do not think of But he pointed to a lot of research that showed that in their intervening year, a fair number of small bits of circumstantial evidence have come out that need explanation. And one of them is that the virus that we thought was just sitting in the freezer, unused, was under a name, under a different name, a virus that actually that lab had been manipulating for five or six years, and that it had been discovered in a cave where miners had been digging out bat guano and some of those miners had gotten pneumonia and died, which made this a much more suspect virus. I mean, it's the kind of virus you would have chosen to manipulate if you were in that business, and this lab was definitely in that business. And also, ever since this happened, the Chinese have basically been acting like a country that had something to hide. They've been blocking a good investigation. I understood that in the very beginning because, first of all, they were battling an epidemic of their own. They didn't need to be bothered with outside investigation teams. And second, the United States treated them with this incredible, condescending, you know, we'll send over the CDC and teach you how to do this kind of thing. The the Chinese attitude was, hey, listen, we've had grad students over going to Harvard, going to MIT, going to every place else for years and years. We've been studying at the CDC. We've learned this stuff. We've got a world-class CDC ourselves. We don't need you coming over here and showing us how to shine our shoes. So, you know, thanks very much. But then when the WHO tried to do an investigation, it was very clearly heavily controlled by the Chinese, and the the message that they wanted to get out was the message that was sent out. And we really need to see, or I mean, it would be good for the world to see the lab logs, to see the internal emails when they realized they had a problem, to see exactly what has happened over the years with their work with this virus and all the other related ones that have come out to see if there's any possibility that this virus or something very close to it could have been sitting, say, in a culture of human cells inside that lab from which it might have escaped. They have not been open about it. So, and it's not just me thinking like the American people like an explanation, the hell with that. The people who really deserve an explanation are the Chinese people. I mean, they were the first ones who died. They are the ones who are most at risk if this happens again. I mean, whether it's an animal spillover or a lab leak, you have the same problem one or the other started a pandemic and a lot of people died as a result. You have to solve both problems. You have to stop your animal spillover problem, which means stop your wet market, stop your bushmeat trade, stop all the other things that are dangerous. And you have to have higher biosecurity and you have to question whether or not you want to do this kind of research in your labs. Because we do that kind of research in this country too. We do it in Wisconsin. We do it in, in other places. And it's highly dangerous research and it's extremely controversial. And if it gets out, people could die. And there needs to be a big and continuing high-level discussion about whether or not this research is a good idea or not.
0: We're going to take another quick break, and we'll be right back with Donald McNeil. Cool Fact.
2: And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: Just for listeners, it comes up again and again, the phrase gain of function. Could you explain that uh, to our audience?
1: Yeah, it's a bad phrase, and it causes confusion. And there's arguments about what the actual definition is. But classically, even though "classic" probably means going back 15 years or whenever the phrase was coined, was it means taking a virus that you know infects humans, and if it's lethal, making it more transmissible, and if it's transmissible, making it more lethal. So suppose you took the common cold, which you know is very transmissible. And you added some genes that made it much more dangerous, much more likely to kill you. Mm -hmm. That's gain of function. Suppose you took something like bird flu, which you know is 60% lethal, but does not transmit very easily between humans, and you added other flu genes to it to make it more transmissible. Now, why would you do such a crazy thing? Why would you do this sort of like, let's create a Frankenstein and then poke him to see if he's, you know, how strong he is? Right. The theory is you do it in order to. Sort of rehearse in the lab what changes in the virus would be dangerous and would behoove us to raise the alarm of a pandemic and start making vaccines against it. So you sort of see how many changes would it take in this virus, should they happen to occur in nature, to make it dangerous. Now, some scientists argue, you know, this is like, it's like atomic research.
0: Right, right.
1: You don't want to drop something on another country that you've never tested. Right. But testing atomic bombs is very dangerous. When the first one was tested, a lot of serious scientists were afraid that it would set the atmosphere on fire right. and life on Earth would end. And they had some pretty plausible arguments on their side. So we did find ways to do nuclear testing and so have some of our rivals in that field. And it's a dangerous enterprise, but we do it. It's mm-hmm. similar with viruses. You w- want to see what makes them terribly dangerous. But a lot of people think, listen, this is inherently too dangerous and you shouldn't do it.
0: We do quite a lot of it ourselves, right? I mean, the U.S., I mean. Uh,
1: we do some. It's under very controlled conditions. We do it a lot less. The permissions you need to do that kind of research have gotten a lot harder to get recently. And it's an ongoing field. This is a continuing debate. There was a moratorium for a few years, I think it was back in 2014, where all gain-of-function research was stopped. And then it, it proceeded slowly with much greater restrictions on it. But of course, we have no control over what's done in the lab in China. The controversy between Rand Paul and Tony Fauci was over the question of, did the NIH fund gain-of-function research at the lab in China? And Fauci says no, and Rand Paul says yes. And some of this hinges on, one, the grant wasn't to the lab in China to do that research. The grant was to the Echo Health Alliance, which was a group founded by veterinarians from the Bronx Zoo. <laughs> Seriously who mostly teach people how do you catch bats safely and get samples from them You know, without the bats infecting you with something. How do you fire darts into gorillas and then get close enough to the gorilla to get a sample of the gorilla's blood and things like that. That's their specialty. They are not lab scientists. So the question is, once you've taught the Chinese lab how to get the bat samples, kind of up to the Chinese lab to do what they do with the bat samples. And then the question is, Is it gain-of-function research if you are not taking a known human pathogen, but you are instead taking a bat virus and making it more likely to infect humans? Technically, in some people's minds, that does not meet the definition of -of gain-of-function research. But in a lot of other people's minds, they think, wait a minute, that's crazy dangerous. Of course, that's gain-of-function research. So this is, a, as I interpret it, that's part of what the dispute between Rand Paul and Tony Fauci was all about except that it got so nasty that nobody sat down and said, okay, let's agree on our set of terms we're talking about here.
0: Right, right. And we had to deal with Rand Paul's interpretation of the political benefits of taking on Tony Fauci, right? Right, exactly. You have a book proposal out there. I don't know if you would like to talk about that, but if you would, tell us what you're proposing to write. There are,
1: everybody's mother is writing a book about COVID right now, so that the country is is flooded with proposals just about COVID. I'd Have spent twenty-five years covering infectious diseases. And that gave me some perspective on what was going to happen when this disease hit. Not that I knew it was gonna hit, but you know, and what will happen the next time another disease hits. And I hope some of that history and some of those stories, a lot of which are fun, you know, including Sleeping in pygmy villages, hunting villages, covering the bushmeat trade, and, and what it meant for AIDS, and being chased out of the village because the people in the next village wanted to kidnap me for ransom, and st- I hope stories like that <laughs> will be of interest to people who don't necessarily want to read, you know, what a newsman who spent much of the pandemic sitting on his couch making phone calls, um, <laughs> you know, had to say. So I hope there'll be some good stories there, and I hope there'll be some lessons that did apply to this pandemic and will apply to the next one. All
0: right. Well, thank you very, very much for doing this. And I will look forward to reading that. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for tuning into the News Items podcast. Listeners can read Donald's work on medium.com. The best way to do that is to put into Google Donald McNeil, Medium, and away you go. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Biename, Ali Allie Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer was and is Ben McNamara.